Hello, and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education. I'm Dr. Rob Cullum, a GP trainee and podcast lead for TASME. In this episode, we pick up the topic of interprofessional education. My usual co-host Katie was not available, so I had the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Sean Zhang, Chair of TASME and an ophthalmology trainee based in the east of England. We had a fantastic discussion with Professor Liz Anderson from the University of Leicester, who is the Joint Chair of CAPE, the UK Centre for the Advancement of Interprofessional Education. We heard about her serendipitous route into medical education from innovative clinical work, and then we explored progress in interprofessional education over the last 10 years since the publication of Professor Jill Thistlethwaite's paper in medical education 10 years ago, which summarised where things were at then with interprofessional education. The link to that paper should be in the description for this podcast episode if you want to have a read. So why don't you make a cup of tea and join us for this episode where we will explore why learning together should be the norm. Hello and welcome to this month's episode of TASME Time Talks in Medical Education. Uh, My name's Rob, I'm one of the two co-hosts and this evening we are joined by um, a guest host hosting with me. So we've got Sean who is the chair um, of TASME. So do you want to say a quick hello Sean? Hi everyone, good evening. Yes, I am unfortunately an intruder today on the podcast. Um, Thank you, Rob, for the kind introduction. And I'm covering for Katie, who's uh, the normal co-host. So lovely to meet you all. And I'm excited for this episode. And it's fantastic to have you, Sean, and um, and great to have you stepping in. Um, And we're also joined by our very special guest this evening, Liz Anderson. Um, So before I introduce Liz, the topic of this week's um, or this month's podcast is all things interprofessional learning and education. So Professor Elizabeth Anderson is responsible for interprofessional education and is patient safety lead at Leicester Medical School. After completing a graduate nursing course at St Bartholomew's Hospital in London and then working on a cardiothoracic surgical ward she moved to Leicester where she worked as a midwife and health visitor. Her early research explored sudden infant death syndrome and fed into the back to sleep campaign. Elizabeth moved from healthcare research into scholarship in medical education where she then led innovative practice-based educational interventions underpinned with theoretical insights. She served on the board for the Disability Partnership the Prince of Wales Advisory Group on Disability, while supporting education on disability awareness. And she's been a board member at the Centre for the Advancement of Interprofessional Education in the UK, um, also known as CAPE, and in 2016 became a CAPE Fellow and was appointed as Joint Chair in 2020. Elizabeth was awarded a National Teaching Fellowship in the by the Higher Education Academy for Outstanding Contributions to Education in 2007. And she's widely published in the area of interprofessional education. Um, And she also runs a patient and carer group to align patient involvement in the design and delivery of professional education. So really a fantastic guest for us to have with us um, for this evening's episode. So thank you so much for joining us this evening, Liz. Um, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And um, yes, that's a, a long story of a career of uh, nearly 40 years now um, of moving from 
an early unusual nursing degree. I was one of those experimental groups that um, we did almost as long as you guys in medicine, five years to get a degree at the same time, which actually has come full circle to be something so important to me because my degree major was in psychology. And then I've ended up years later designing and delivering into professional education and now um, passionately lead on that for the UK Centre for the Advancement of Interprofessional Education. So thank you so much for inviting me and um, I look forward to our discussions. Fantastic. It'd be really interesting, I think, for our listeners, particularly our listeners who don't come from medical backgrounds, because we know not all of our listeners do, to understand what it was that got you interested, I guess, into health professions education. So that's a really amazing story, actually, in itself, because um, as a research health visitor, after my PhD, I started to do research into poverty and disadvantage. And I worked in one of um, Leicester's most disadvantaged areas. And in doing that, um, helped um, a GP colleague of mine who, who is now joint chair with me of the UK Centre for the Advancement of Interprofessional Education, Dr. Angela Lennox, set up one of the country's early multidisciplinary healthcare centres. And we didn't know about how to use terminology in those days. So multidisciplinary was the word. And as I set up that um, research and completed that study on this um, poverty and problems in the inner city, I met and was drawn into the medical school of Leicester, where I was invited to then help design early innovative community-based education, which was growing in importance in the medical curriculum. But at that time, there wasn't enough community-based training. So from that, um, in the well, the early 1990s, I set up this program called Health in the Community, and I turned around to the um, chap in charge of the medical school in Leicester and said, do you know what? I think I would have liked this course as a nurse. I'm designing it for doctors, but it doesn't make sense to me that it's just for them. So I got hooked into education, pulled in, and my career changed, and I did not go back to health visiting and research in the community. I um, was sidelined into a career in teaching and learning. And I think it's typical of many of my generation that we probably did half our time clinically and then switched into education. Whereas I think today we are looking at better career development all the way through to lead on to a career where you may become an educator. So I sort of started again and got my certificate in postgraduate certificate in education and learnt all of those theories. But in doing so, went back to my degree in psychology more times than I'd like to remember. I think that's fascinating. And it certainly sounds like you've um, done a lot of work within medical education. I was just curious, since the theme is IPE or interprofessional education or multidisciplinary, as you used to call it, is that something that's always been in the heart of what you've done in education from the beginning or something that's formed as you've gone on and moved through your career? Okay, so that um, beginning was very accidental. Designing 
complex learning for patients who were experiencing problems with poverty and disadvantage. So on top of their health problems were a plethora of social problems, housing issues, financial issues, very interdisciplinary as well as interprofessional complex issues. And we set up this course um, for students to be given their own patients and to explore what they could about how to help them and after a while I was able to go and talk to the nursing school and the social work school and we turned it into an interprofessional course and I didn't really know much about interprofessional learning at that time it just seemed like common sense and the learning was richer because we brought social workers and nurses together to explore these cases together And somebody put a leaflet on my desk from Cape and said, I've listened to Dr. John Horder. He was he had been the um, chair for the Royal Society of General Practitioners. He set up Cape um, and he says, I was talking to him about what you're doing in Leicester. And he says, you should come and talk to this community. So I discovered this community who had been researching and starting to explore what interprofessional education was, what it was aiming to achieve. And this was at the time of the Bristol Heart Babies. Um, So in 2000, and it was Tony Blair and the NHS plan and team working was on the agenda. And suddenly I fell into this world that needed research. It needed further understanding and exploring and met through CAPE. Um, many scholars who were researching in this space, including Professor Hugh Barr, who's written a a large amount. And later, of course, I met um, Professor Jill Thistlethwaite, whose article I think you want to pick up this evening. So it was accidental, um, but it was topical and really important um, at that time, because you might remember that everything changed for medicine as a result of the Bristol Heart Inquiries. You were brought to account as a professional group, and there was this feeling that surgeons had acted as bullies and there wasn't a good team working set up. I think it's, um, I, this is my favourite bit of the podcast, I'll be honest, hearing about different people's careers and how they get to different places. But I, I think one of the real things that I find interesting is there's a real divide between people depending um, quite how far through their career is how I'll, I'll word it, um, to be polite, um, as to how much luck played a part. in. And it's quite interesting where we've had people of, of um, perhaps a younger generation it's a much more planned and as you alluded to there I think chance seems to have been a much bigger factor in people who are in the second half of their career falling into medical education and health professions education and and I think that's quite interesting so that it's really made me smile and a little bit as you've already alluded to um tonight we have got a paper that we want to discuss um sort of as a real springboard for listeners who may be less familiar as well with with interprofessional education um as a point. So the paper is Interprofessional Education, a review of context, learning and the research agenda. Um, So it's 10 years old now. It was published in Medical Education. um, And as you said, by Professor Jill Thistlethwaite. So and and really what the paper does is sets out a really nice, um, solid background of where things were 10 years ago. And I think 
that straight away leads us um, onto the question, where do you think things have moved on in the last 10 years since that paper was published? Uh, well, firstly, Jill Thistlethwaite would be thrilled to know we're, we're discussing her paper, and it was one of the most downloaded papers in medical education. So um, it was a fabulous summary of the state of interprofessional education back in um, 2012. And as you say, we're 10 years on. What has changed? Well, I think that um, she alluded to tomorrow's doctors. We've got for um, the General Medical Council, a new um, outcomes framework, which has placed a great deal of emphasis on learning about team working. So it's certainly being pushed much farther by the, further by the GMC. It's also been pushed by the NMC for nurses and for the Healthcare and Professions Council for all of the other professions. Um, and so therefore, there is there is more, um, if you like, interest in interprofessional education in that we all now have to offer it. What's missing, though, and what Jill alluded to in that paper is um, the dose effect. And nobody, no professional body has said it must be a proportion of this much time that you spend with others while you're training. So that leaves it wide open. In fact, I'd say the pharmacists have moved faster and forward in a dose effect of how much they want in terms of they've really pushed it for the new training for pharmacists more than anyone else. So it leaves it wide open for interpretation in terms of how much do you offer and one of the things Jill alludes to in there is um, reasons for interprofessional education. So she pulls out the World Health Organization documents, and we have had more since that time. She pulls out patient safety issues, and you've asked me to speak on the back of the Ockenden report. So if we think about where have we come from and have we advanced? Since she wrote that, there's also been the Stafford inquiry. Um, so the story, she could be still writing that paper and updating it. Have we ticked it all off as done? Well, well, possibly not. And if you haven't looked at the Ockenden report, um, remember I lead on patient safety as well as in professional education and teach on other things in the medical school. But Ockenden says the individual human factors um, were 58% of the cases that she looked at. Team communication issues were 53% of the cases she looked at. Um, lack of team leadership was 24% of the cases. And wait for it, poor intra- and interprofessional communication 43% of the cases that she looked at at Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital NHS Trust between 2000 and 2019. So it sort of mirrors um, post that paper, but also it was happening during that paper. Um, 
And at the same time, the World Health Organization, if you've not looked at it, has recently published a paper called the Global Competency Framework for Universal Health Coverage, in which they've called for a rethink, really, that actually education design, the design of what we're putting in curriculum, needs to be better linked to the world in which people are going to work. In other words, practice should be shouting back a lot more at curriculum design than it is. And the connectivity between what we design and what a young qualifying doctor this year is going out into should be much stronger. The other thing she alluded to in that paper was integrated care. And of course, in the last few years, we've seen the launch of the integrated care systems. They're still in their infancy. But I don't know that at that stage, we'd envisage in the UK quite such a tight connection between health and social care budgets. You know, what does it mean now? for these practitioners to come together at the highest levels and share accountability for cost and spending. So um, the other thing she alludes to, which has definitely come true in the last 12 years, is the reason for interprofessional education being around complexity of patients. And if we think that in 2012, there was complexity, if we think about the aging population now, um, the problems that we've got with bed blockage because of social care, and all of these issues that are going on, which you two have probably faced today in your clinical practice, um, the reason to be working in well-functioning teams in which we can share skill sets and work innovatively and think differently has never, I think, been more required. So I think some of the questions she leaves open are things I think you want to discuss a bit more about, well, well, how should we do it then and how should we align it in a curriculum? I think that was a wonderful summary and discussion of that paper. And the paper itself, I think, was a very, you're right, a very comprehensive review uh, from 10 years ago. I think you made a very interesting point that you said certain groups like pharmacists were ahead of us or ahead of the medics, ahead of other groups in IPE. And I just used the word us there subconsciously, which is very interesting because one of we had a Twitter discussion, Twitter forum. I don't know if you know, we run this monthly uh, forum uh, on social media where different topics are discussed. And IPE was a topic a few months ago. And one of the things that came up interestingly was that Often there's a long-standing mantra that medics should be taught by medics, etc., and that maybe was a barrier to getting LP, IP up and running. Do you think, given that context and theme came up in a discussion only a few months ago, presumably that also thought existed 10 years ago, I was wondering what you thought things have changed in the last 10 years since the paper, and whether this is a barrier, or was it just we had a particular subgroup in that forum? And if so, how can we overcome that? Um, wonderful thinking there. Um, so let's just think about medical education. It is really very interdisciplinary in that you have a large amount of your teaching by scientists early on. Um, and you do employ in a range of settings other healthcare workers. 
But it, it is my experience that faculty tend to not employ um, a wide range of disciplines within them. Um, and there may be reasons for that. Um, and I can see value in, so, you know, I'm an academic nurse, I now have a title of a professor, and maybe, you know, I feel I'm worthy to be in a medical school. But I, I think I was worthy to be in medical school when I first started, but I don't know that I felt that initially as a nurse, if I'm honest. Um, and I think it's interesting when I look at my own training. So when I was at Barts, I mean, it's going back a long time, but some of the leading experts in medicine came to teach me. So Professor Besser, who was a leading expert in endocrinology, I was taught by him. Absolutely stunning people who were doing cardiac work because Barts Hearts is it's famous for that. Um, and we didn't question the fact that we had a lot of our teaching from doctors. I think you're right that the culture of um, valuing being taught by someone who's a non-medic by medical students is work to be done a little more. I know that um, I've heard it said that sometimes the, the medical students will go off and, and they're sent for a day to be with nurses or to do things with nurses and maybe that's not well received. And I think it's it's part of what interprofessional education is about. It's valuing the unique contribution that each discipline brings and understanding the breadth of all professions because the scope of what is under a professional umbrella is much wider than I think we we often see. We often stereotype it down to something that is a, a stereotype image of oh, this is what an OT does but I think it's fascinating that I think the generation coming through the doors of medical schools now are team players better than I've ever seen it I think they relish the thought of working closely with pharmacists for example with complex medicines issues and having another colleague they can grapple the problems with I think they also look forward to an era when maybe teams are sued for wrong decisions rather than the doctor. And I think things are subtly changing out there that there would be better, um, and there is, I believe, in most medical schools, better balance coming and the acceptance of others. But do I think that that is the reason in professional education has been harder to get into medicine it might be one of the reasons, but I, I think your curriculum are so jam-packed. I mean, it's it's interesting that we've heard that maybe the GMC would consider shortening the course, when in fact possibly it needs to be a bit longer. Um, yes, it's heavy curriculum, cumbersome curriculum are often discussed for medicine. But I think what people get wrong is that Interprofessional education is not an addition to. It's taking something that you learn about, for example, discharge planning or medicines optimization, and thinking, is there a different way to teach this? Well, actually, if I brought in some pharmacists here, or if I brought in some nurses and social work here, would that enrich and deepen the learning? And the question that people need to ask is why that's not happening. Because I think people see it as 
added in extra. Well, it's not extra. It's just how you take learning outcomes and say to yourself, do you know what? They would be much better achieved if the medical students did them with another for this reason. So I think it's a mindset about the packed curriculum. We've got too much. Oh, it, and, uh, and maybe it's also that old nugget, which I don't believe is the reason to be a barrier. There's just too many. You know, a medical school with 300 medics and a nursing school with 200, 300 nurses and a pharmacy school of 200. How do we do it? Well, you can do it. You can run regular short events throughout the year that connect students. It's just a barrier, really. I think that's a really interesting point and very much leads on to to one of the questions I wanted to ask, because I think if I think about my own experiences of interprofessional education at medical school, I get two spring to mind and one was much more effective than the other. And I think the reason it was effective was that um, alignment between what the learning outcomes were and therefore it made sense. And it was it was an obstetric emergency training day with the student midwives and it worked really well because there were bits of it that were very medical and there were bits of it that were very midwife led um, and it, it had that team aspect as well. I guess one of the things the paper highlights is that having constructive alignment in, in getting the right outcomes first and, and linking those then to what you use IPE to teach is important and you've already alluded to a couple of areas that that it works well in things like discharge planning, um, et cetera. But what do you think are the areas of the curriculum that are best to use IPE in? Okay, so if people are lost as to learning outcomes, Jill Thistlethwaite and uh, Moran did a lovely paper on that. Um, They went through all the papers of interprofessional education and looked for the breadth of where people were using learning outcomes for interprofessional education. Where would I pitch into professional education? Well, let's think. I mean, there are complex problems for older people. So around all of those classic things, diabetes, um, heart disease, people with COPD, those classic conditions in clinical areas on wards, students can take some of those patients together and unpack who does what and why and actually start to think about where would you, if you're discharging this person, bring in social care, therapies and other supportive services. So in clinical areas, there's a plethora of places. In the early part of the curriculum, Most people now have to do the theory of team working, human factors, all the patient safety areas make for fantastic workshops for students to come together and explore some of these uh, topics together while um, addressing the learning outcomes of all of the curriculum. Um, Today, I was at a conference in Bolton University on interprofessional education, and they're looking at... um, sustainability and and I know that this was a big theme in Amy the other week you know geography changing climate all of the things saving money how do we you know there's a lot of questions about how we deliver economic safe healthcare, and students could come together to explore some of that because that's really important the cost of paper and 
PPE and all of these things are, are across the professions. There's a, a wealth of issues that teams deal with every day. So if you think about stroke, I can't think of a better area for interprofessional learning than patients with, with stroke um, present in so many different ways. There's a plethora of all the professions. So if I'm honest, I could keep going because there's there's so many complex areas where the professions work together. Um, you talked a little bit there about your time with obstetrics and simulations. I think that interprofessional simulations are hard to do. I've actually published a paper on this. I think that sometimes we call them interprofessional simulations and they're about 10 medical students running a ward with maybe the odd nurse and the odd pharmacist pop plopped in. That's not doing interprofessional education any justice. And I think if we're going to do simulations, we need to think about doing them appropriately um, and making things feel like real clinical context moments. But I think that everyone has interesting areas where interprofessional education should appear. So for me, if you're aligning it, you start with all the theory pieces. What is it that I need as building blocks? How much do I need to learn about the roles and responsibilities of others? What is the theory on good teams? The students need to know it now. How do teams form? What are the personalities in teams? How do we work? What does Belbin say about teams? You know, some of all this theory is can be explored interprofessionally. Then you've got all the human factors, patient safety stuff that you can do in the early years. And then you can start turning it in the clinical years into clinical case study work and authentic interprofessional education. The things that students would normally come together to do make sense. So you talked about you came together with midwives and it was an authentic piece that makes sense to students. Don't put them together to role play being things they're not or to have a go at something that they'll never do in their careers, because I think that turns people off. And then, of course, you've got to assess it. I'm going to put it in the curriculum. There's got to be formative feedback. Jill Thistlethwaite has done a fantastic piece of work on that. If you've not looked at the ITOF tool, individual team observation feedback tool, it's fantastic. Um, use that for formative feedback um, and then of course build portfolios where people can write reflective pieces on what they've seen about team working and working with others and then you can build STEM essay questions and you can um, build OSCEs where you ask people um, interprofessional questions. It's not the full answer to know whether or not you're a team player, we should set you up in a team situation and measure you there. We haven't yet worked that one out because that's jolly tough to do, but we can still measure certain knowledge, skills and attitudes of the individual and we need to be doing it. I think that was uh, covered a lot of excellent ground and actually assessments or assessing was exactly what I was going to ask next. Um, I think we've talked a lot and the importance of IPE, I think you've alluded to already, is extremely important in terms of clinical outcomes. 
I think is without a doubt communication is an important part of patient care, both in terms of safety and uh, in terms of the well-being of the staff members. But there's a lot of initiatives, perhaps anecdotally related to IPE, at least from a postgraduate experience. I think Rob and I can both say that we've probably had a lot of experience after graduating rather than before graduating. But a lot of these, um, especially ones that you consider perhaps are more innovative, can be quite hard to assess their sustainable and long-term sort of effects. And for a lot of people who are starting out, perhaps in medical education, that would be the kind of things they get involved in, the innovations, the new sessions. Have you got any advice on how they should set things up so that they set themselves up for success? The ability to measure their effect, I suppose, long-term and to ensure a sustainable and uh, something that's sustainable with a real impact. So I think interprofessional education, like all good education, needs crystal clear planning and thinking. And if you're going to design something, you do it collaboratively with a team. So you get together with your IPE leads from nursing or pharmacy, whoever they are, maybe bring some patients into the mix and magically sprinkle some students in. And then you can debate and discuss um, and design a curriculum that you can all own where students will get enough interactive, deep, reflective learning with others where they will start to value the input of others and recognise the skill sets and learn that um, wonderful fluid orchestral piece that you do every day in practice where it all is stitched up together. So I think if you design something slowly with a great team, as I've just alluded to, and then start with some small pilots, and that's where you need a bit of experimental time and you need your heads of school to allow that flexibility for experimenting and looking at the feedback and not getting too disillusioned if it's not perfect first time. Um, sometimes there's a whole variety of reasons for that. Um, and you need to work it out and, and make sure that everyone is happy and, and you get to a place where, where you're happy with the feedback. And then you scale these things up slowly and embed them and, and, and make sure that they're there. So the piece of work I was just telling you about with medical students and pharmacy students at my university doing medicines optimization together, taking a real patient and working out their medicines together, well, polypharmacy and medicines optimization is in both of those students' curriculum, both of their learning outcomes. And um, we've taken maybe two, three years to pilot this in primary care, and we finally embedded it now. So everyone's signed up to it. Everyone's enjoying it. And we put 300 medical students and nearly 200 plus pharmacy students through that course um, in small numbers throughout a whole year. And it is sustainable. And we've, we've committed to it. Um, the general practitioners have been wonderful, very supportive. The clinical pharmacists are coming to listen to the students' feedback sessions. They're very supportive. 
And um, we can say we've got a practice-based, relevant piece of learning um, where students are having a go at being the future teams. And slowly but surely, you can design something that you can start to offer to everybody. And or you develop a set of relevant practice-based learning opportunities in a sort of pick and mix format so that maybe not everyone will do the same thing. But there's an opportunity to have a go at something um, during your clinical years. For me, the more I think about it, the more there are opportunities for these things. Um, You just alluded to communication there, Sean. I mean, we do um, interprofessional sessions teaching students together how to use SBAR, for example, um, with real patients and with simulated patients. And we have a lot of fun. And they teach each other and they talk about where they've seen it used, how the nurses might have seen it used, where the medical students see it used, and, and develop those skills together. Now, it's not pure interprofessional education in that they are not in a unpacking uh, clinical things and having a real debate about clinical situations but it it's merging thinking and bringing students together in a meaningful way so I hope that answers some of what you were asking me Sean because I do get very sidetracked in my thinking but it's not an easy nut to crack but to make something sustainable You've got to be prepared to have a go, throw it out if it doesn't seem to sit well and redesign it until you get something that you think that really works. Everyone's happy. We can commit to this Um, and publish it as you go along, because the world of interprofessional education does need sophisticated thinking. It needs to ask itself some theoretical underpinnings about why it's working puts you know understand your theory inside this learning and sit back and um, get some good data because it's all publishable um, in this area I think there's something I wanted to ask actually building on that again so last month our podcast the topic we talked about was gamification and I think there are a lot of parallels in how the topics are talked about as things of growing interest Um, I think there's certainly a lot of parallels in terms of of the challenges in terms of implementing it and particularly given that we know a, a good amount of education certainly for medical students is now delivered by educators employed by trusts often clinical teaching fellows who are a relatively transient workforce um, and I think it's interesting we see a lot of excitement um, and ideas and, and innovation when it comes to the concept of gamification, but we don't see that necessarily in the same way with interprofessional education. And I wonder, I don't know if those two things are maybe linked or whether what your thoughts might be on that. Mm, it's interesting because I think um, you can do quite a bit, um, <coughs> excuse me, with the technology Um you can have some fun, you can play games. And I think um, technology enhanced education is being used quite a bit or can be used quite a bit in the interprofessional space. Um, 
Rakesh Patel has done some great thinking and work in that space. And, and I think, you know, we we need to be um, innovative and, and think about things that can be delivered to make it exciting to bring different students together. Because the younger generations love their tech. Um, they do lots of exciting things. Why not think lateral and sideways and bring these things all together? I don't think in its early days when we were struggling to understand interprofessional education, it was well received and, and therefore for some people it's got stuck with a label that might be its problem. Um, I think if we we think about other topics like mindfulness and if people go to the wrong way of thinking about that, it will get stuck with its label rather than people seeing the totality and the benefits. For me, I don't know how we we hook it out and make it make educators see that this is a method of teaching that deepens student learning. Um, and it can be fun. And if you do have interprofessional classes that work well together, you come away as an educator with a real buzz because you can set up something that's that's really exciting. Maybe we need to see more interprofessional student societies in universities to connect them for things outside of the curriculum. So it becomes a pushed agenda by students because I think when it works well, they really love it. I'm yet to bump into a medical student who says he or she that they didn't enjoy a day with the pharmacy students or the the um, nursing students or our physio students or whoever it is. When we're together, they normally go, oh, that was fun. I'd like to do a bit more of that. Um, I think assessment drives learning. As Sean, you said that we need to make sure it is assessed and therefore uh, students understand that it's expected and that the attendance to these things matters. The more we align, therefore, the learning outcomes, the content and the assessment and seek to have a set of activities that you claim as yours in, across the curriculum that you're proud of, that you know do the job, that prepare people for working in these modern, innovative teams, the better. And let's do more studies on assessment and how we can um, design the best interprofessional skills, um, the best um, written exam questions, for example. I think that's a fantastic point. And we've been talking about assessment for quite some time now, I feel like. <laughs> um, I've got a question which is hypothetical because I think you are you are obviously a very experienced person within the field of IP and medical education. And if we were to give you a magic wand, hypothetically, so you could make any changes that you want, with the knowledge that we know about IP and the background and its impact, what would you what would be one thing that you would change or improve on or implement related to IP within the UK that you think 
will have the most impact on outcomes. Wow, that's a biggie. Um, yes, I think there needs to be some dose. Um, I think so. Um, we talk in some schools about you have a module on this or you have a block on this or whatever. Um, sadly, interprofessional education can be a day here, a day there and a day somewhere else. But what what is it? What is the dose effect that we need? So I think we see it as a tick box exercise or we've offered this. The GMC haven't asked. They've just asked for a bit of interprofessional education, but they've not said. So if they were to say... We expect all medical schools to introduce students of medicine to other students in the first six months of training in some form or another. We expect all medical schools to connect um, medical students together to learn about patient safety um, in some form or other. And we expect all medical schools to set up practice-based interprofessional education in some form or another then I think we will win the day. So it's the dose effect. I think at the moment it's, you must have it, but what does that mean? Really? What does that mean? I can just offer one day and that's enough? I think that's a really nice place to sort of bring discussions to a close as well, because I think um, it leads to me to the obvious question, thinking about our listeners, particularly those that are clinical teaching fellows, as a bit of a, well, actually, you can help contribute to thinking about this. You can you can go out and do it. Yes, it will be more difficult, potentially, than other things, because you're, you're trying to pull together those different groups of learners. But actually, there's real scope there to, to really start to define that impact and then start to contribute to knowledge around, around that. And I bringing it back to what you said earlier and I think ties in again with this dose effect is yes the curriculum in, in medicine is often thought of as as being cumbersome and, and over full but actually if we can teach if everything if we hold for the fact that maybe not every all of it should be there if we take that as for granted then if we teach it in the best possible way or educate our students from a medical perspective in the best possible way and sometimes that's going to be IPE and we can tick two two boxes with one attempt and and I think it's really something that I would encourage our listeners to go away and really think about what they do in their own education practice and hopefully we can then start to get the data to really answer that dose effect question going forwards. Um, Definitely absolutely definitely and if you all sit down and think if I took a blank sheet of paper and asked you to write down all the clinical situations that were fairly um, complex where you do need to go and ask what the physio thinks or what somebody else thinks or what the pharmacist thinks. You start to see all the different areas where you will work with others and where you need the input from others and how, um, if you understand that, it will be so much easier um, to work better with others in a clinical team because what we need out there at the moment I mean the coalface right now is very stretched and so we're talking about these wonderful things at a time when it's really hard to be in these stretched teams and so we do need people that are culturally very supportive of one another and care for one another and these are part of the outcomes of interprofessional education that you will actually 
um, go and talk to that healthcare assistant at the end of the day and thank them for all the good things they've done, that you'll turn around to your teams and say, this was a good day. We all did well today and care for one another in what I think are very difficult times at the front line right now. Thank you so much, Professor Anderson, for your time today. I think this has been an excellent episode, an excellent discussion. And I've certainly learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will have also. Thank you for asking me. Thank you very much for joining us today. I want to say a very special thank you to our guest, Professor Anderson, for her eloquent insights on this topic. Thank you also to Dr. Sean Zhang, my brilliant guest co-host, for stepping in. As always, I'd like to thank Dr. Asim Javed, who edits these episodes, Dr. Cleone Pardo for all of her support with publicity, and to Amlunya, who made our theme music. Finally, thank you to everyone on the TASME committee who supports with the production of this podcast. I've been Dr. Rob Cullum. You can find out more about TASME, ASME, and our many other subgroups at asme.org.uk. And make sure that you follow us on Twitter at hasme underscore UK. Join us next time, where we'll be discussing well-being and mental health with special guests Dr. Anna Melvin from the University of Exeter and Dr. Clementine White, a psychiatry trainee based in London. Thank you again for listening to Tasme Time, and we really look forward to seeing you again soon.